Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello and welcome back to Black's History Week. Continuing the series of podcasts on the British military deployments, Professor Jeremy Black talks to The Critic's deputy editor, Graham Stewart, about the future role of Britain's armed forces and whether the departure from Kabul marks the end of foreign nation-building operations. Professor Jeremy Black, we're discussing British armed forces at the most opportune and perhaps least opportune of times, most opportune given the uh, uh, fallout from the collapse of uh, Afghanistan to the Taliban, raising all sorts of questions about um, the, the future of British operations abroad and relations with the United States and NATO, but also a, a difficult time for, for a, a historical perspective because events have unfolded so quickly, uh, so much is in flux. There's a temptation to, to rush to you know, press the panic button whereas actually cool, calm deliberation is required. I, I want to start by asking you whether, uh, as, whether your view as a historian is that um, we have now seen the end of liberal interventionism with, uh, with the collapse of Afghanistan, or whether actually liberal interventionism has been part and parcel of British Armed Forces deployments long before the Gulf War, and uh, it was just repackaged in a different way, and that heritage will continue in one form or another? Gosh, well, that's a big question, uh, Graham. Let's start off by saying to everybody, um, not just hello, but also that we're recording this on um, August the 30th, and it's useful for people to know when we're doing so, because that helps to make it more of a document. And can I go back to your initial point? Your very starting point was to say is there a danger of a rush to judgment? And I think you're right, there is. Uh, it is obviously always the case that commentators, and we are commentators, we're not outside this process, that commentators necessarily tend to address what comes over the horizon immediately, but they always do that, alas, in a fashion that reflects... Um, as it were, the immediate wisdom. And the immediate wisdom is not necessarily a terribly sensible wisdom. So on your bigger question, uh, how crucial is this for the international relations of Britain and its military purpose, or indeed of the United States, which possibly we ought to discuss on a separate programme, the answer is much less so than people have imagined. For any power of whatever type, there is always a need to consider how to respond to the range of priorities facing them. There is always related to that the uh, occasional episodic or frequent, depending upon your circumstances, requirement to move away from existing commitments. That tends to be presented by its critics in the most lurid of lights. And um, we've seen a certain amount of that. And of course, the actual circumstances of the departure, and the, these are circumstances which are very much played out through modern technology of news transmission in the public uh, uh, gaze, the very circumstances and the degree to which 
Uh, clearly, there was an intelligence failure or apparent intelligence failure. I'm actually not so convinced it was as large as is made out um, as to the speed of the Taliban's success has meant that that has conditioned or created a sensation of failure. Well, the sensation of failure, I think, has to be conditional. You may recall when we did our programme on the Trump administration and the retrospective. And I said to you that the principal problem with the Trump years, which possibly will be looked back at by strategists as the most serious problem, is that these, these years saw the development of rocketry by North Korea that could be weaponized to take uh, atomic warheads. Now, quite frankly, compared to that, the Taliban is a walk in the park. I mean, they may set off a bomb that kills you or me or many other people. Uh, they may unfortunately be linked to developments in Afghanistan we don't like and are very unfortunate. But compared to North Korea or indeed the possibility of a confrontation, still worse, conflict with China, this is at best a very secondary issue. And it is the total and utter naivety of so much of the debate on this in Britain that doesn't capture that. That. So let's start off with that very basic point. Yes, we are an aspect of an alliance system. Any alliance system has to look at priorities. The major power in the alliance system is the United States. And quite clearly, in terms of the security, uh, not just of the United States, but also of key allies to it, not least Japan, the concern about North Korea and indeed China has to come before that of, toward developments in Afghanistan. And I thought the debate in the House of Commons on this um, reflected very poorly on the understanding of strategy. I'm afraid to say the chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee, um, Mr. Tugendhat, was particularly uh, hopeless in resorting to emotion in this circumstance rather than the conditioned discussion of respective strategic requirements, which is what is necessary if you are considering how an alliance should best operate. Okay, so let's just start with that point. On the second point you raised, which is again a substantial point, um, which is, is this an end to liberal interventionism? Well, obviously none of us knows what may or may not be the circumstances thrust before us, and we have to consider what liberal interventionism means. If it might mean, for example, in the case of the United States, protecting Japan or Taiwan, both of which are democratic societies, that is scarcely the end of liberal interventionism. One might also add, at the risk of irritating people, that compared to Japan or uh, South Korea, Afghanistan was, under our um, supported regime, a particularly corrupt one. So if we are talking about liberal interventionism, we need to be cautious about what we're talking about. Another democracy which the United States quite rightly has concerns to help is Israel. Again, 
Israel is a state in which if one intervenes in its favor, that would be intervention in, in behalf of a liberal democracy, which again is significantly different to Afghanistan. So I don't think this is necessarily the end of what one might call liberal interventionism. But if by that phrase you mean um, the end to nation building, uh, because quite clearly there is already a nation in a place like Japan and a nation in a place like Israel um, and a nation of a certain form of democracy um, and liberalism. If you mean that um, intervention of a nation building type, then one might suggest that there should be more prudence, but quite frankly, that prudence had already been signified some years ago, and you could argue that it was a mission that had gone badly wrong years ago. If the mission was destroying Al-Qaeda, the Al-Qaeda network was seriously compromised in 2001-2002 by the initial in, uh, intervention there. And as we know, Osama bin Laden was not when he was finally tracked down in Afghanistan. He actually was in a state which was that, in theory, of an American ally, to wit, Pakistan. So again, if that was the purpose of the intervention, it had already been handled a long time ago and successfully. If what you mean is the somewhat naive ideas which very much were expressed in particular by Mr. Blair, though not only by Mr. Blair, then quite frankly, those already seemed rather fruitless quite some years ago. Mm. Well, uh, talking about when decisions were taken to move away from um, nation building, um, back uh, last year, November 2020, there was the uh, defence spending review, uh, followed a few months later by the integrated review of security, defence, um, development and foreign policy. And, and they, both these um, reviews uh, identified Russia and China as the two biggest challenges for, um, for the British armed forces. Um, does that suggest that actually really the decisions had already been taken that strategically the, these were going to be the focus of uh, British military strategy uh, before you know, the, 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 the more recent scenes that, that have uh, captured the uh, imagination of, uh, of uh, commentators more broadly? Well, again, that's an excellent question. Um, I think the First of all, as you know, and you can look back at my various writings on the subject going right back, I thought that there had been a dangerous slippage in the case of both Iraq and Afghanistan very early on. So, But if you are looking at formal declarations of changes in American policy, the crucial ones were under the Obama administration in terms of the pivot to Asia, so called by Asia he meant, not Afghanistan or, or Iraq, by Asia he meant uh, East Asia and the concern for the security of Japan, South Korea and Taiwan uh, in the face of the rise of Chinese power and ambition. Now, given that that was already the case in the Obama administration, and the United States was moving in that direction. It was developing its strategic partnership with Australia. It was encouraging Japan 
um, to focus uh, much more on the challenge from um, China rather than its more traditional Cold War concern about Russia, etc., etc. Um, I think, it, and of course, the British. Um, were developing their naval strategy, whether we think this is wise or not, another matter, it's been discussed in the columns of the critic, including by myself, um, whether that was wise or not, the British were developing their naval strategy in terms of the deployment of a carrier group to the Far East, entirely in line with the United States. So clearly, from that point of view, um, any emphasis on Afghanistan was redundant. And it was a question of how one moved away from it. The United States and Britain had already moved away from the committal of combat troops for ordinary mission. They had already um, restricted uh, what they were doing. And indeed, a number of NATO powers had already withdrawn their forces. So the idea that this is some recent apparent failure, whatever that means in this context, by the administration of Mr. Biden and uh, linked to that some supposed failure of a global British foreign policy is rather foolish. And again, to return to the point, the calibre of the discussion, both in the House of Commons and in the British media, has not been impressive. Let's just put it like that. Um, it is quite clear that for the United States, for many years, there has been a greater concern about China. It is quite clear in this context that, as, as with other similar interventions, there was a desire, a need to move over to the local supported regime to support itself. When those regimes are able to do so, they keep going. When those regimes are not able to do so, they don't keep going. The United States only maintains a significant force if, as in South Korea, it identifies an absolutely crucial national interest there. And this is not its job or role, nor should it be, I'm pro-American, nor should people expect the Americans to keep large forces in harm's way around the world just to suit whatever they may think should be its foreign policy priorities. Well, you said earlier that we should perhaps discuss um, uh, British relations with uh, strategic relations with America another time. But I, I just want to, because it's a, you know, a subject worthy of, 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 of proper treatment, but I just want to touch on it uh, now, also in relation to, to NATO more broadly. Um, so much of uh, British strategic policy um, since the late 1940s has been attached to NATO. Now, no one seems to quite have a very clear handle of what, what, what the, the future role of NATO is um, and what part Britain and America may, may, may play in it or, or whether they, they look to other uh, forms of, of, um, of operational alliance. Uh, how, how do you see that shifting? Well, I think if you go back to NATO, and just to remind listeners, uh, NATO was formed in 1949. Uh, it subsequently expanded quite considerably. It was part of a wider pattern, or what became a wider pattern, of regional security um, alliances, of which um, the most prominent were the ones in uh, Southeast Asia and in Central Asia. 
NATO was the one that lasted best, I suppose one could say. But eat from the word go, there were differences and tensions, um, not just between the United States, and of course there is Canada as an important member, but not just between the United States and what you might call the European powers, but also between the latter. And again, it's not as though Afghanistan is uh, a new issue here. It might well be said the mistake was, as I think I suggested in our last programme, the mistake was to try and treat Afghanistan as a NATO mission, which I think was extraordinarily foolish. Um, if you're asking, does NATO still have a purpose at the present moment? The answer is quite clearly yes, um, insofar as there is concerns for the security and um, self-sufficiency of a number of European powers that are under challenge from Russia. Um, and NATO is seen as a key um, uh, military and diplomatic uh, agency in trying to deter Russia. So very much, I would say, that NATO still has a function uh, that doesn't mean, and it shouldn't mean, that it is the only role in which states like Britain or France exercise their security or foreign policy interests. No more than no more will it be. It's a quite reasonable role for us to play a major, uh, to be a major concern in NATO. And insofar as we want to remain on good terms with a number of European powers, there is this is an even more in our national interest. Um, but it's never been the case that NATO was the sole concern of British foreign policy, and that again hasn't changed, nor has that changed in the case of the United States. I mean, the United people tend to forget, you know, as you know, it became a pattern during President Trump's administration of blaming everything on, on President Trump, which was naive. There have been past episodes in which American uh, presidents have often rightly been very concerned about a lack of European willingness to um, take a role, military role, um, uh, and a sense that the Europeans, particularly Germany, have been, um, as it were, right, you know, not bearing their relevant co cost structures and political uh, commitment. And I think, I think one could say that's a perfectly reasonable assumption. Um, it doesn't mean that we should give up on NATO no more than it means that the Americans should give up on NATO. But we need to be aware that NATO is not the necessarily terribly relevant outside the European space, to use an ugly phrase, and within the European space, it is most relevant if the United States remains committed to it. So yet again, uh, those people who try and argue, uh, and again, I think quality of the public debate on what's happened in the last two weeks has been abysmal. Those people that argue that there's some sort of uh, either or, it's either a European role or a, or a links with America is stupid. If we are going to have, be able to give substance to our security guarantees to powers like Estonia, we are dependent on the Americans playing a major role. There is no either or here. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, talking about the relations within NATO, um, the prospect of uh, a stronger Anglo-French level of cooperation is, is one of the uh, subjects often raised. 
it never looks terribly promising, but, but or doesn't look terribly promising at the moment, uh, given um, President Macron's attitude. But is that to look too narrowly at the moment? Is there, I, I'm not talking about recreating some form of entente cordiale, but, but does it strike you that Britain and France, as, as the two European nations with the most significant armed forces, are nevertheless natural partners in um, many theatres where, where uh, common interests can be identified? Yes, I mean, uh, as you know, um, this is not a new idea. I, I think Bernard Bogdanov has been writing about it as though he's invented it, which is, is just ridiculous. This is an idea that's been going around for a long time. You can refer back to the um, Cameron Sarkozy um, attempt to develop relations. You can refer back to their cooperation, for example, in the Libyan crisis. So this isn't new. And again, as I said, the quality of public debate. I mean, I think Bogdan often his pieces in the Times is ridiculous in his suggestion that he's just invented this sort of thing. Um, um, th this has been an idea that has been much in circulation, and there is a measure of cooperation in some respects. There have been attempts to take that cooperation further. Uh, I think you're quite right in your say in saying that um, it doesn't look terribly promising from the point of view of if you're looking at President Macron. Uh, let me give you a French viewpoint. Um, would you really have wanted to be cooperating with Britain if you thought that Jeremy Corbyn was going to take 40% of the public vote in, in the election before last? I mean, you know, it's not as, I mean, the, <laughs> the, the British seem to imagine that everybody else is unstable and they're stable, which I think is a hilarious way of viewing, or, or for that matter, Scottish separatism, you know, the, the, the viewing the politics of the British Isles. Um, I mean, we now look more stable because the Labour the party has got rid of its, um, uh, or not got rid of, they're still members of parliament, unfortunately, but has neutralised for a while its left, whilst the tendency, however you wish to refer to it, of UKIP has been absorbed into the Conservative ranks. So we look more stable than we've done for many years. France will look unstable for at least a year as a result of the next election. And obviously, if uh, the German election, I mean, Lazalit was a, they say the EU candidate was in effect a Macron protege. Uh, if Lazalit Lee loses, then obviously that's not exactly brilliant news for France, although that may indeed, may just encourage the French to be trying to have better relations with Britain, as I've again already mentioned on this programme, this series, one of the reasons that the Pompidou administration decided that they wanted Britain into the uh, what then was the European Economic Community was because they were becoming more concerned about um, the rise of the uh, the left in uh, what was then West Germany, and in particular, Ostpolitik. So there are a number of factors to play roles here. The question is, what exactly do you want out of Anglo-French military cooperation? Um, you can have, as has been discussed, 
um, agree, you know, agreements to help over the location of aircraft carriers and this sort of thing. You know, there are things you, you can do, but what exactly do you want? Um, uh, if it is the case of intervening to support allies who are in a parlous state, and the British have sent a certain amount of logistical support to help the French in the Sahel in um, sub-Saharan Africa, um, there are, I would have thought, limits to what is credible for Britain to be imagined to want to do to help out in states like Mali or Niger or Cote d'Ivoire or, or so on. Um, if what you consider that we're talking about is an agreement to try and cooperate to ensure that if there are crises in the Balkans uh, of instability or um, problems with Russia, that the two major European military powers um, maintain close links during such crises, that's all to the good. Uh, clearly, neither of these powers are taking hostile steps towards each other militarily. So we don't even need to think about that. You know, it's not as though the weapons plan targeting for British or French nuclear weapons uh, are focused on each other. So, you know, I mean, you know, so one, it's not, it's not, we're not looking at this from the perspective of, oh my God, if we don't get on better, we're in a disastrous situation. We actually are fundamentally attuned and aligned in defense terms. The question is, what do we do with that? And from the French perspective, it is understandable that given that what they want to do is to try and beef up their vision of Europe, which is their idea, or of the European Union, one should say, that Britain's is not appearing in a marvellous role. But can I just say, before that is seen as given some comfort to anti-Brexiteers, the point that's worth bearing in mind is that would have been the case whether we were in the European Union or not. We had, when we were members of the European Union, we had signaled very strongly our concerns that French plans might be, might weaken NATO. We had already signified that. And if anything, us leaving the European Union has probably helped the French in terms of conceptualizing their ideas for a kind of EU defense and foreign policy space. The problem with those ideas is they're essentially very flawed. I mean, I'm not criticizing the French in this, in the sense that the French are putting too much credit on, on what is likely to occur in the case of quite a few of the EU partner states who are not going to do what the EU might want in this respect. Again, nothing to do with Britain being there or not there. So when you've got some, I, I take it you noticed, I mean, this you've got some on the commentariat and some MPs and some military people saying after the Americans in their eyes let them down. The only reason they should think the Americans let them down is if they've been paying no attention to what the Americans have been clearly saying for over nine years. But, you know, um, the, but you've got people saying, oh, well, this means we need to look more to Europe. Well, they've got to be aware that that is not an unproblematic set of, um, of uh, outcomes, irrespective of whether Britain has a role in it or not.
totally irrespective. Do you expect the Spaniards to do much for the security of Estonia? Do you think, you know, these kind of questions come up whether we are or are not members of the EU, and people need to be aware of that. Isn't that uh, the, one of the interesting points? If there is a more um, concentrated European common foreign and defence policy, uh, I'm talking in, in the years ahead, that, that could be a, really an, an alliance to do nothing in essence. And France, for example, uh, may find itself constrained uh, because the, the consensus, a European consensus, ultimately um, would, would never push for action. There would be a, a consensus to uh, do, uh, to take the safe course, whereas one or two nations, let us say Britain and France, might decide to, uh, to go on their own. If, if France is part of this um, common foreign and defence policy, might they be uh, constrained by acting with, with the British where there, there might be a need to do so, the, the Baltics being an, an obvious case in point. Yes, you're right. I mean, I've, I've been to uh, Baltic military conferences in which, you know, they discussed what would happen if um, there was trouble. And I think it's fair to say that they're sceptical about Germany doing anything. And without Germany doing anything, the formal mechanisms of a EU policy is not likely to work. So that they're very concerned and hopeful that NATO would still have substance and that uh, Britain would play a significant role accordingly. I think it's fair to say that um, that is much more in accordance with most people's concept of our national interest than uh, commitments in Central Asia. Um, the perspective from the United States is that if the United States and um, regional allies, to wit Japan, Australia and India, play a role in deterring Chinese um, expansionism, then it should be primarily Europe that plays a role in the same as far as Russia is concerned in either Europe itself or in the Mediterranean. That is within the military competence, if well-led and well-managed, of Britain and France and whichever other European powers are willing. And the obvious institutional framework for that remains NATO. So given that that's the case, I'm not quite clear that anything dramatic has changed in the last two to three weeks. Um, separate to that, 
if we are looking ahead, Britain as a, or the United Kingdom, I should say, as a military power and as a political entity and as a foreign policy um, player still has to consider the possibilities of uh, a recurrence at some stage of instability in Northern Ireland and the possibility anew that Scotland might debate uh, independence to the point of another referendum, particularly if that is ruled illegal in by national institutions, and that there is a kind of unpleasant illegal response. So these again remain issues irrespective of what is happening in Kabul. And one can slightly turn this on its head, well, let's say considerably turn it on its head, by saying that precisely because there are difficult issues out there, which are highly problematic, what would we do if the Chinese, not officially of course, arranged for an explosion to sink the Queen Elizabeth? What would the United States do if more um, Chinese flights um, intervened if, over Taiwan, Taiwanese airspace? What would happen if either by deliberation or by accident, a North Korean nuclear test went ugly somewhere in the Western Pacific? What might happen if there was a recurrence of large-scale violence in Northern Ireland, or the government of Scotland called a referendum which was deemed illegal. All of these are serious matters that require careful thought. It is therefore not surprising that, shall we say, it is easier for people to make facile remarks about Afghanistan. So I think the low caliber of British discussion about it, um, which takes me right back to something I've written about, which is the lost art of strategy, and you know my history of strategy, um, in a way helps to explain, because those are difficult issues, why people prefer to handle what to them seems an easier issue, which is expressing outrage that the situation has not uh, developed as they like, and to imagine that they can in some way solve this. I mean, you know, good luck to them. I wish well to the people involved, but I'm more concerned about these other issues. Well, one of the themes that we've been discussing in this series has been the nature of priorities. You know, the, strategically, the problem is everything's a priority, uh, but everything can't be a priority. Um, and uh, uh, you mentioned earlier about... Uh, well, can the, I just say, I don't think everything is a priority. I don't think Afghanistan has been a priority for years and years and years. And I'm sorry, you know, because obviously real people have lost their lives. 
And it gives me no pleasure to say to them that this was not the key issue as far as British strategy was. It is no pleasure to say the same if you're an American policymaker. It's really not very attractive. But one has to be realistic about this. Afghanistan has been a secondary issue for a very long time. Okay, well, let's let's take two areas where uh, Britain is actively involved. One is in the Baltic states uh, where we have forces. We talked earlier about uh, the varying level of enthusiasm in uh, Europe for uh, playing a, a large role there. So Britain could find itself um, to a large extent ho holding the baby in the Baltic states without adequate additional support from other European countries at the same time in which Britain is actively involved with the United States in the South China Sea. Um, is this an area of potential overreach for British strategy? Yes, very clearly. Um, the, I suppose what one could say is this, that the, there is not at the present moment any intention, and remember the, arm, the army is smaller than it's been for a very long time, there is not at the present moment any intention to locate army units in these areas. There is, as you've said, a naval deployment. A naval deployment is, shall we say, easier to contain. Um, but I think if what you're asking is, is there a potential hazard of confrontation simultaneously with Russia and China, I think that that has been the case ever since those two powers started to move closer together in the early 2000s. That has been the major strategic change and challenge of the last quarter century, that in a sense, in strategic terms, the great opportunity for the West was the Sino-Soviet split, and then their movement to active antagonism and preparations for conflict, that that ensured that the Western powers, principally the United States, were able to win the Cold War, which they did, whatever people might think, were able to win the Cold War with the Soviet Union at a relatively modest military cost. Um, but that that situation has eroded, that has been the great failure of Western foreign policy over the last quarter century. It has been much more serious than the complete stupidity of the commitments in Iraq and Afghanistan. But it has compounded the failures that have been made. Quite frankly, if China and Russia were hostile at the level that they were in the late 20th century, then the strategic folly of our interventionism would have been less serious. Now, going back to your questions about priorities, for Britain, it's a particularly difficult issue because it wishes to 
be a good ally to the United States and to develop and maintain alliance relationships with other powers, particularly in this context, Australia, India, and Japan. And that does mean a role in the Far East. Um, I think it's fair to say that there is no way we would be sending the Queen Elizabeth into the Baltic. It is not a sphere to operate a large deep draft vessel of that type, um, which would anyway be extraordinarily vulnerable to the um, surface to surface missiles in the Kaliningrad enclave that the Russians have. So it would be a sitting duck. Um, so from that point of view, once you had decided to have the aircraft carrier, and as you will know, I have suggested for years, this was not the wisest of um, decisions, that it would have been better to invest in other naval vessels. Uh, but once you've decided to have it, it might as well be where it is at the moment. Um, possibly if relations with Russia were worse, um, one might want it uh, elsewhere, but in many respects, in a, you know, awful as this is to say, aircraft carriers are an out of date system compared to new weapons technology. Um, it's really, I mean, in a way, we're, in, we're helping our American allies by reducing their need to maybe have an aircraft carrier somewhere else. So maybe if we had ours in the Indian Ocean, that helps the Americans and makes the Americans um, pleased with us in that respect. And there's nothing wrong with them being pleased with us because we're dependent on them in many respects. But it is, I would say, pretty crucial strategically that we see the maintenance of NATO and adopt whatever military means are necessary to ensure that that is the case. Um, and that itself is very difficult because you have a domestic public opinion in Britain, which, um, shall we say, has got other concerns. One of the supposed winners of the spending review was the Royal Navy, already obviously the, the Queen Elizabeth class carriers, but also new support ships with that, um, new frigates being ordered, um, deployments in, in the South China Sea. This is a time when the, 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 the boots in the British Army continue to shrink. Are we heading back towards an almost 19th century defence policy where the senior service, the Royal Navy, really does take the lion's share of uh, British deployments? Well, the Navy has been strategically crucial ever since uh, we moved from free fall 
uh, nuclear bombs to submarine launched um, missiles. The, and that's an important component of our deterrent and not least our deterrent towards Russia. Um, I think there is a concern about the army being run down to a point where it's unclear that it could simultaneously come to the aid of the civil power in the British Isles, as well as undertaking necessary tasks in the European or near European space. So from that perspective, I think there is a problem. I mean, obviously there is an issue with um, recruitment. So that's, um, and maintaining the net level of troops for the army is difficult, but the same thing is the case for the Navy. And of course, naval expansion is gonna make that worse. Um, I'm not quite clear that if you had serious problems on land that you would be able to use the navy to the extent that might be envisaged by people who think in terms of uh, sea to land power projection so from my point of view i would always keep up a reasonable number of troops in the army. I think we're in danger in that head. I myself have always been worried about large scale instability in Britain and the weakness, potential weakness of the police and being able to deal with that. What I am less convinced of is, I mean, I wouldn't go it as a trade off between army and navy. I'm less convinced of what particularly the air force is doing at the moment. Um, if you were going to, to um, use missile systems to uh, deliver lethal ordnance, you don't need an air force to do that. Um, so myself, um, looking at the variety of issues pushed in strategic reviews, I would regard it as important for domestic security and the European space to keep the army up, for wider global interests, including the protection of sea lanes, to keep the Navy up. And if it was necessary to then make cuts, I would be looking to the Air Force to make them. Well, that's a, a very uh, um, um, succinct and trenchant point on which to end. Professor Jeremy Black, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. I do think actually, I mean, I don't, you know, you might say it's trenchant. I mean, I have thought about it for quite a long time <laughs> and, and have written about it for quite a long time. And, and I mean, I, it might sound slight, slightly abrupt. I mean, listeners possibly, and I sometimes get people sort of writing in with expostulation and I think to myself, well, why don't they take the trouble to read my books where I've tried to explain these arguments at some length. Um, but, you know, a point I made 
at a meeting uh, at Westminster three years ago was that even if we doubled our defence budget, which we clearly cannot do, and this was some time ago before the recent increases, we still would have to make choices. And a lot of people seem disinclined to do so. And I just think that's lazy and facile and doesn't help people. And I think there is a kind of, you know, people complain at the present moment that the, I've noticed a number of arguments about it. I noticed Emma Duncan writing about it in the Times that the British weren't working hard enough. Well, that may well be the case, I don't know. But it's certainly the case of the commentariat and the political class. They don't work very hard. They increasingly rely not at the necessary thought to try in at highlighting options, choices, and to suggest priorities. But instead, they kind of shoot from the hip with slogans, facile remarks about Suez or Munich or whatever. And what one is seeing is really ignorant people. Now, there has always been ignorant people, both making comments and taking decisions. But one would have hoped that in a society that is relatively open to talent, which we are now compared to where we were 50 or 70 years ago, one would hope that we would be able to do it better. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the current offer of five issues for £10 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.